Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus. Brad, another day, another podcast. What's going on? Not so much. Um, looking forward to, uh, to diving into today's conversation, um, which we are recording against the backdrop of learning about the divorce of Bill and Melinda Gates. And um, when that happened, I think like a lot of people, we were shocked, but it also paused and, and made us reflect that um, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk um, all had marriages who ended recently. And whatever you say about the direction of their passion and where they channel it and the end results of the companies and really empires they've built, it is indisputable that all three of those guys are what we like to call pushers. Um, they just work extremely, extremely hard. Um, Elon Musk, in an interview a long time with Joe Rogan, where he smoked pot and it was a huge deal because he smoked pot on the air. But to us, that wasn't the most interesting part of the interview at all. The most interesting part is when he talked about how people look at him and they see these fancy cars and wealth and this cool dude, but it's actually a very um, disconcerting and discombobulating place inside his head sometimes because the cost of that is he can't turn it off. Uh, if you watch the Bill Gates documentary, you know that Bill Gates is very upfront about his inability to turn it off. And um, Jeff Bezos was known for waking up at like four in the morning and not being able to turn it off until he went to bed at eight at night. So, um, yeah, you know, we're just going to we figured it's an important topic and certainly not everyone listening has the same kind of drive as as those three individuals. But um, we thought that it would be good to talk about the kind of um, I don't want to say the wreckage, but some of the potholes and speed bumps and perhaps wreckage that that kind of intense drive and motivation can leave in its wake. Yeah, and it's a it's a subject that's not often talked about because these individuals and others like them have achieved incredible things. And often what happens is when you achieve incredible things, the rest of your life, the other things kind of get pushed to the side or not talked about in your story. And it's not just these three individuals. I remember when we were researching for the Passion Paradox, I mean, the list was pretty surprising and, and sometimes pretty long on individuals who we'd classify as pushers who had some part of their life that was just kind of chaotic and a, a mess. I mean, even, you know, even someone who's uh, widely, you know, regarded like a Warren Buffett, for example, there was that wonderful HBO documentary on his life. And we talk about this a little bit in the book where you know, his family life, his kids talked about their dad, you know, their dad's mind not really being there, right? It was yeah, the all quote was that, you know, he was there, but he wasn't really there. And then his daughter, I distinctly remember saying, investing came very easy to Warren, but being a dad came very hard to him. Like you really had to work at it. Exactly. And it's it's just fascinating and interesting. So hopefully we can unpack this a little bit and talk about that drive and the trade-offs that come from it. Yeah. In, in, in another example um, from the Passion Paradox was even someone like Mahatma Gandhi, who did so much incredible work for nonviolent resistance in, um, in peace in the world, um, but had all kinds of familial issues 
Again, we don't know the source. We're not in the room where disputes are happening, but it has to make you wonder if someone that is so focused on creating something, building something big, whether it's all electric cars or trying to overcome oppressive regimes for peace or in Bill Gates' case, huge public health initiatives after his work at Microsoft, um, there's a real cost to that kind of motivation and drive. Yeah, and I think import, it's important as we set this conversation up is it's very easy to get into a judgmental mode where you start judging these people uh, for different things. Um, but I, th- I think when we're evaluating these kind of trade-offs on this extreme drive, it's important to kind of step back and keep that perspective. Um, because, you know, people accomplish incredible things, but at the end of the day, what I think is very readily apparent is that they are humans and like they suffer from the same foibles and drawbacks and indecisions and trade-offs that, that we all have to uh, deal with on, um, you know, different occasions. Yeah. So, all right, let's dive in. So we talk often about passion. We're going to do a quick recap. Those who have read the book, The Passion Paradox, this will be a refresher. Those that haven't, um, it'll, it'll get you up to speed. Two kinds of passion, obsessive passion, harmonious passion. Obsessive passion is when you care more about the result and you become passionate about external validation and being relevant more so than actually doing the thing itself. Harmonious passion is when you are very much in love with doing the thing itself. Examples. This is the difference between writing books and loving the chance or being on a bestseller list. Uh, Competing in sport versus actually winning. Um, Doing whatever traditional workplace uh, profession you have versus constantly getting promoted and being a vice president or a C-level person. And the research shows that individuals with obsessive passion who become super attached to and focused on outcomes tend to have higher rates of burnout, depression, anxiety, and cheating. And individuals with harmonious passion tend to have better life satisfaction and well-being. Now, if you have obsessive passion, it's really bad. And it's not going to be good for your relationships. It's not going to be good for you. Harmonious passion is interesting because it can be really good for you, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's good for your relationships because you could be doing something for all the right reasons and really love the work, but get so swept up in it that you're sacrificing everything else around you. And I think that that is what's going on, certainly in the case, again, outside looking in of Bill Gates. I think Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk are are maybe trickier because they're not as public or maybe I just don't know as much about their lives. Um, I often think of Elon Musk as someone that isn't aiming to be like great and liked in this lifetime. He wants to be remembered like Jesus or the Buddha or like one of these historical figures that changed everything. And, you know, it's not my job to analyze whether that's good or bad. I just think it's very interesting. Um, But Bill Gates in particular, he just seems like a good guy. So it's interesting you have that perception because I think he probably seems like a good guy now. Um, During his Microsoft days when they're like taking over all these random companies and all that stuff. And they were known for pretty harsh, you know, tactics um, to win battles, right? That's true. So are they just all egomaniacs? 
I don't know. So it's interesting because this is something I thought about a while. Is like Bill Gates has a really good reputation now, and de- you know, deservedly so for you know many of the initiatives that he's put forth in the lives that he's saved with like clean water and all these other you know vaccines and all this other stuff, right? Um, but it it seems like you know with him, it seems like his drive and I'm doing it from the outside end. So I could be totally off, but that, that drive that might've been obsessive towards building Microsoft, right. Um, was then once it was done directed towards, I'd say more positive things, right. That help, help humanity. So you could make the argument that like, Oh, maybe it was obsessive, but then he changed his drive towards things. And maybe if he didn't create Microsoft and give him the billions, to do it, then he would have never had this like positive second half of his life. Yeah, it's really interesting. And then you take someone like Elon Musk, who I think I would dislike it a hundred percent if his main deal wasn't electric cars. And therefore I still dislike him because I think that like when he tweets, you know, masks don't work, COVID free America, open whatever, I I it just makes me cringe. And um Cars are increasingly going electric, and I don't think that that would happen without Tesla. I'm not saying that Tesla cars are going to take over, but I think that he proved concept enough where every other automaker fell into line, and that could have dramatic effects on global public health in the future of the climate and in the planet. Um, so I'm glad that his main focus is on electric cars. Now, do we get lucky? Like, what if Elon Musk stumbled into like a tobacco company? Might not be so pretty. Right. And I think what we're hitting at here is like the nuance and complexity of people, which also gets to the complexity of passion, right? So we've sele- we can separate them into this like harmonious and obsessive, which is true. But as we point out in the passion paradox, it's not like you're a hundred percent obsessive and a hundred percent or a hundred percent, you know, harmonious. Most of us, you know, fit somewhere in the middle and sometimes sway one way or the other. And, and it's like, you're, you're trying to kind of thread this needle. And I think one other thing before I turn it over back to you, Brad is, he asks a question there that is like, are all, are these guys egomaniacs? And obviously we don't know, but it's it's like I've had this discussion with you and then other friends on the pres on being the president of the United States. Wait, who's the other friend? I'm jealous. I'm <laughs> Life outside of Brad calling me 24 times in a day. It Do you have another friend, Steve? Do you really I- have another friend? <laughs> I have. What are you talking about? Them? I got. I got fifty thousand of them on Twitter. That's those are your real friends, right? That's yeah. how it works. Um, so you were talking to your dog Willie about whether or not he wanted to be the president of the United States. Go on. <laughs> but no, what I'm saying is that um, to be the to to almost want to be the president of the United States, you have to have some sort of you know large ego. I think. I mean, it's there are exceptions to the rule. I'm sure. But it drives that sort of person. And I'm wondering if that that rule holds true or that rule of thumb holds true for, hey, I'm going to make a, you know, whatever. Right. Billion to billion dollar company that takes over everything and has a, you know, 
yeah, takes over an entire sector of the economy. Yeah. And some of it I also think is just a matter of scale, right? So like when I think of, um, when I think of times when my ego is really big and I don't like to think of myself as having a big ego, but I like to think of ego something that is sometimes small and sometimes big. And it's kind of the job of like my awareness is to realize when it's big and ask, is that healthy? So even when I do have moments when the ego expands and gets big, for me, it's never about like total domination or expansion. It's like, oh, I want so many people to read this book and appreciate this book and to talk about it and to be relevant. But there's no part of me that's like, and then I'm going to start a company based on the book's name and open up stores and start selling like supplements and expand, expand, expand. So I also think there's got to be like a certain mindset um, of expansion. And we need people like that. Like the example that I always give is that if I came up with Whole Foods, the original Whole Foods in Austin, Texas, you would have to kill me to take that company and expand it and make it public. I would just be the best small town grocer there ever was. I'd make a ton of money as a cash cow. I'd be invested in the community and I wouldn't have to deal with the headaches, the suits, any of that. So I also think there's a component where you have to have the mindset of like not only wanting to build something that's good, but going like big with it. Um, And I don't know if that is attached to ego or attached to just like the the rush, but there's got to be a temperamental thing. Cause I'm, I mean, I'm being honest here. Like there are definitely times when I have very big ego, but during those times, it's never about like expansion. Does that make sense? Like, I'm never like, oh, we got to hire like 30 people and have growth equation offices everywhere and like change the way that everybody talks about success and well-being. I mean, the way I kind of look at it, and we've had these conversations, you know, off podcast before, is if it was a Brad and Steve world, the growth equation would be big enough to allow us to go on runs, walks, lift, sit around, read some books in between and not have to manage anybody, right? And and, and that is great for us that's kind, of, that's kind of what we do except we don't make yeah. enough money to like really <laughs> do that. <laughs> that that is the secret but that is our that is a yes that's our life right now but that's our our end goal but like if you're if we were in that that might just tell you that we don't have that mindset where if we were elon musk or jeff bezos or whoever of the you know hundreds of the examples we could give we might sit here and say, you know what? We want the growth equation to take over wellness, right? We want it to have its own book line, its own Netflix show, its own like the food. Right, like the goop equation. Yeah, oh, exactly. <laughs> the goop equation. Yeah. So it, there's something temperamental about it or something in that drive that like pushes you beyond just like your here and now world around you to. Right. You know? Yeah. It's like super big ego is like 2 million people are reading my book, but I'm still just going to like sit on the couch and feel really good that 2 million people are reading it. I'm not going to like ask like, well, can I create a movie based on the book? Nope. Um, if you're a Netflix film director and you want to pay us a ton for a TV show, still, still call. Um, no, in all seriousness, I think it is a different mindset. So, all right, without getting too far astray here, 
so even at smaller scales, right? Like you get hell bent on qualifying for the Boston Marathon. Um, you really want to get promoted to partner at the law firm or consulting firm, whatever it is. You when when you when you go all in here, you're going to make sacrifices there. And I do think that something that often gets sacrificed are personal relationships. Uh, and I paint that broadly, not just intimate relationships with a significant other, but family, friends, community. Um, those things tend to get crowd- crowded out when there's really high drive and single-mindedness in one area of life. And I think we often think about this in the context of athletes, particularly Olympians. But I'm going to make an argument that it is harder for people who are in more traditional or intellectual pursuits because an Olympian has to turn it off. Like their body has to recover. Whereas for Bill Gates or Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos, like your brain can constantly be problem solving and thinking about work. Like an athlete that's constantly thinking about their sport, we'd say is an athlete with an anxiety disorder and it would do them well to just like when they're not training, try not to obsess over your workout Whereas Bill Gates, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, when you're running organizations that big, if you could have a battery that you don't sleep, you could think 24 hours a day, seven days a week and never run out of problems to solve. So I often make this point um, to athletes or coaches that I am very thankful that I was good in the sport of running because your body stops you, right? Right. There are so only so many miles I can run, which means there are only so many hours in a day I can train because if I do more than that, my body will literally break and break down. Other sports aren't, you know, have more leeway, like swimming, which is why you can trash yourself for more hours. Right, or cycling too, I was just yep. thinking. Cycling. So I'm thankful that I'm I never was in one of those sports because I can imagine what I would do. And I think that analogy applies, you know, even more so to these intellectual pursuits where there is no, no, like this immediate feedback or this feedback loop that tells you like, hey, stop, you're done for the day, you can't do this or else you like your body's going to break and you're not going to be able to do that. We're not very good at recognizing that with A, our mind and then B, things that go on outside of, you know, our little narrow view of the world or workplace. Um, so it's, it's, it's really difficult. Yeah. I, something that I personally tried to do myself and then certainly with coaching clients is I just come back to you over the long haul, you tend to be your best when you have some semblance of harmony in your life. So the world health organization talks about health as having multiple components, physical, intellectual, social, emotional, um, I'm forgetting one, and spiritual. And if only one of those elements is like 100% and there's zero elsewhere, I think problems are on the corner. So for an athlete, it would be just physical. For someone like Bill Gates or Elon Musk, it might be just intellectual. And I think you almost always have to keep at least two of those buckets partially full. And ideally, you keep three, four, all five um, to perform your best over time. So I try to think of it not so much as like a trade-off, but a both and. So if I want to be really good this week, yeah, I might go all in on A. 
But if I want to re- be really good over the course of a couple decades, then I need to go all in on A and make sure that I'm not going so far all in that I can't do B and C. Because um, it's not about being balanced per se, because I, I don't encourage that in clients. I think it's more about just having harmony in these different areas of your life and not totally neglecting something unless you really thought about it. Yeah. And, and the thing I think you have to be aware of there is that the thing or the idea or the object of your passion that you're pursuing tends to narrow you so much that your worldview becomes like just that one little bucket, right? And that's why we tend to neglect these other buckets that you just outlined there is because whenever we're driven or passionate about something, driven towards something, our attention, it's almost like this reinforcing cycle, right? Where we have a problem to solve, we solve that problem. We have, you know, another challenge to take, take on. Our attention gets, you know, focused on that, that, that challenge until we get it. And we have this reciprocating cycle of attention, then drive and dopamine that goes with it so much so that it narrows your focus of attention where you stop seeing anything outside of that. And I think that's a lot of times where we get into these problems um, where relationships might be neglected, other things might be neglected because your mind and your brain is has literally narrowed your focus so so much that your your thinking, your actions, your behavior are all centered on this one narrow slice of the world, and you're in you have this inability to zoom back out and see everything else. Yeah. Do you think it's a good thing, a bad thing, or just a thing? So I think it's a thing. I think it's a part of being human. Like we're designed that way or like we're, our biology pushes us that way. I mean, we can just look at, look, look here, let's, let's throw in some science because that's what I do. If we're focused on a goal, what happens? Okay. We get a nice little hit of adrenaline in our brain. What does that do? It focuses our attention on the object of our goal and accomplishing that. We stop getting the feedback from the periphery, right? We stop looking at, you know, picking up cues from the outside. We're just focused on this thing. And the reason down that antelope so you can feed your tribe. Exactly. And there's, that's the reason it occurs, right? And we've all experienced this kind of tunnel vision to a degree. Um, And it can be very beneficial in certain situations. So I think as a thing, it's very helpful because it can focus us and get us done. And I think I never thought of it like that with the antelope, but I wonder if that's why the more that your identity fuses with the pursuit, the harder it is to zoom out. So in the, in the caveman, our deep ancestors analogy, the antelope is their identity because if they don't kill that antelope, they go hungry, they die, they don't pass on their DNA. Well, in today's day and age, if you get so attached to your foundation or your company or this idea of having everyone drive electric cars or going to Mars or whatever it is, then that becomes your antelope. And you don't realize that, hey, even if you don't catch this thing, you're still going to live. Or, hey, you can spend a little bit more time cultivating um, family and you're still going to live. But no, to the brain, it's like, that's the antelope. That's the antelope. If I don't get this antelope, I die. Exactly. Survival. I mean, it's kind of like a survival mechanism in the sense that you wake up every day thinking, I need to get food to survive. 
and that food could be literal, the antelope, or it could be, you know, figurative in terms of I need to develop this electric car or, you know, make my company the biggest or whatever it is, whatever the problem is for that day. So it's easy to get, you know, trapped in there. In a fascinating aside, but man, we're putting disparate concepts together. If you like the show, please consider checking us out on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash the growth equation. Patreon is a place where you can uh, support the show through financial contributions and in return, you get some great stuff. This allows us to stay completely independent, um, not take sponsorships, particularly in this space where so much of the stuff that is sold on podcasts just doesn't have the evidence behind it for actually working. Um, So yeah, check us out on Patreon. What sort of benefits are you going to get? Well, you'll be part of a monthly book club where we bring in authors like Maria Konnikova, Judd Brewer, and many others. We also have a mastermind group. You get these podcasts early and other sweet things that are all part of the growth equation. So check that out and let's get back to the conversation. All right. So the, the disparate connection here that um, that I actually don't think is disparate, it seems disparate, but I think it's fair, is there's a lot of research that shows the individuals that are experiencing poverty and are unsure of whether or not they'll be able to pay their rent or health care or put food on the table experience um, a cognitive deficit of about 15 points on their IQ test. So if you wake up every morning and you're not sure if you're actually going to get the antelope in today's day and age, shelter, food, healthcare, it makes you less smart because you have to have tunnel vision for that thing. And in a weird way, I almost wonder if the experience of someone that's pushing at the top of their game, again, especially when identity gets attached, even though it's so far from like eating, but the success of a company or the success of a movement becomes the same as being able to eat. I mean, literally, we see this. You talk about like founders that get sick because they just stop eating because they're like so hyper focused. Um, but I never really thought of that. That like this is really about protecting identity and self. It goes back to our evolution chasing the antelope. It completely explains why individuals experiencing poverty are so challenged to focus on other things because they've got the most acute thing. And I wonder if in these people even though it's objectively not a threat to their lives, it becomes a threat because there's so much invested in it. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Um, I I like your hypothesis there. I, I think someone, hopefully some researcher is listening and, and does some research or some science behind it. Because, you know, there is a lot of data looking at, like, for instance, the stress response, right? Between those who have grown up in poverty versus those who grew up with, you know, secure foundation. And there's a there's a very distinct uh, a difference, uh, according to several studies, in both how their stress response happens to threats, and then their what we'll call stress, uh, their threat sensitivity, in terms of when their brain decides, oh, there's a threat or not. So I, I could see that connecting over to, we'll say our, you know, our billionaires or our pushers, um, in then in the opposite direction to degree. Yeah. All right. Well, I think something else that is important to touch on is that generally speaking, if the 
end goal of someone's drive is a wholesome thing, it's best to be non-judgmental in these situations. So the extreme example is I am so glad that trauma surgeons that are on call 24 hours a day and do shock trauma and that is their whole life exist. Because if I or a loved one was ever in a trauma, I am so freaking thankful that that person rolls up to the hospital at 3 a.m. Maybe they even just sleep at the hospital all the time. I would not want to be married to that person. Both those things can be true at once. Um, There's a really famous doctor named Paul Farmer who um, has done arguably more for on-the-ground public health than anyone in the last century, particularly in Haiti. Um, He basically single-handedly stood up their healthcare system. And in his memoir, Mountains Beyond Mountains, he talks about how the cost of that is his family. I'm really glad that Paul Farmer exists. I would not want to be his son. And these are the really tough trade-offs that, like you said at the outset, people don't like to talk about but it's true. Now, Jeff Bezos, I don't really know if Amazon's a good thing or not. Um, So I'm less inclined to be like, oh, whatever, dude gets a free pass. Um, Bill Gates, his current work, okay. And I don't know what's going on. Again, we're just using this as a jumping off point. For all we know, like him and Melinda, their sex life went to shit. They're still best friends. We just have this hypothesis that some of it is his inability to turn it off. But he's doing a lot of good work for the globe. So am I happy that I'm not married to him? Yes. But am I glad that Bill Gates exists in that way? Yes. And even Elon Musk, who generally speaking, like I said earlier, I just like shake my head at him. I wouldn't be surprised if we look back 50 years from now and be like, on the whole, even though he was a bit out there, that dude was good for society because of the pressure that he put on the auto industry to to innovate. It's really it's really interesting because there's no concrete good answer here. And I think this is why, you know, we generally don't talk about these things because it's it's a complex narrative. And we we live in a world that likes simplistic narratives where you're either good or bad, like evil or not, like you're doing great things or or not. But like that that example you gave of Paul Farmer is a great is a wonderful example of like the complexity of this. And I don't know, I don't know how, I think the non-judgmental is really important if they're doing, you know, quote unquote, good things, because it's so easy to sit here and be like, well, you know, his family fell apart. Well, that is true. That is, you know, arguably bad, but then he did all these other things over here, which are arguably or inarguably good. And it's, like you, it, I don't know if the lesson is like you can't have it all, so choose what you want, <laughs> or, or, or what it is. But it's it's kind of tough to wrestle with. Yeah, and and you know another example um, of this is the great Martin Luther King, who is arguably the most important person of the last century, bar none, and. From what the records show, he had big time family issues in terms of um, being in a marriage that didn't have affairs happening on the side. And again, we're not in that marriage. We're not in that room. But of course, Martin Luther King didn't have probably the 
right amount of time to be the ideal husband because he was out there leading the civil rights movement. So am I glad that Martin Luther King exists? Heck yeah. Would I have wanted to be married to him at that time? I don't know. You have to be a pretty selfless person. Yeah. You know, that's, that's a really good example and a difficult one. Um, because it shows again, the complexity of it. And I think so often what happens is we try and reduce our heroes to just like this all good, this, you know, perfection to degree. But what it comes down to is they're just human beings trying to navigate everything. And no one can do all things wonderful all the time. And we're all forced with like choices to make and we don't always navigate them, you know, hundred uh, percent how society or, you know, we, we even might think we should in terms of our values, but that's the complexity of being human. Yeah. It's, it's really tricky. Um, and then like, you have to ask the question, okay, so if you're just a normal person like us and you're not trying to change the world in, in, in this big way, then how much is too much? And I don't think there's a clear black and white answer. I think it's probably very situational. It depends on what season of your life you're in and open communication with those around you or the other things in your life. It doesn't have to just be people. We talked about how, you know, in the case of like using your brain, well, you can let your health decline. You can let your emotional health decline. You can, your spiritual, that can go to the wayside. Um, so I think relationships are just one component. They're the most visible because in the West, we place such a high priority on like the nuclear family and having um, intimate relationships. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's all, I feel like I'm wrestling with it in this conversation because it's all interesting because I wonder what a Bill Gates or a Jeff Bezos or an Elon Musk would say. Like what would, like to us, if they were telling us, they might say, Brad, Steve, you're capable of so much more, you're settling. Oh, I'm sure that's what they'd say. I mean, I shouldn't say I'm sure, but I yeah, I think so. But the flip side is Elon Musk, and, and it was such a vulnerable moment. Again, it's such a shame that all anyone ever talks about from that interview is the fact that he got high with Joe Rogan. But there was a, there was like a five-minute clip in there where Elon Musk is like, you wouldn't want to be in my mind. And Joe Rogan's like, why? He's like, because I can never turn it off. And it wasn't like this kind of false vulnerability or trying to like seem like the you know, romantic, depressed artist that has to be so sad for their work. Like he was definitely um, just being real and being like, it's fucking not fun in there. Um, so maybe he'd be like, man, I mean, for all we know, Elon Musk is like, I am cursed, but I realize I'm cursed, so I might as well use it. And then it's like, if you're someone like that, then like we just have to hope that again, like thank God Elon Musk is into electric cars, not tobacco. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's true. And if you you zoom zoom out and look at historical figures, there's a ton that are incredibly similar or have, you know, I don't know. It it's like I think about this with uh, Isaac Newton who essentially in, invented the math and changed the world, right? And he did so like sitting in his home and never leaving it. Um and I I could imagine like that was great 
back in those days, if you give that guy with that brain power, like in a in a negative drive now, like what happened? So we all, we're almost like super fortunate in the sense that so far, at least like people with this drive or this obsession um, and this mind that they can't turn off have utilized it for exploring either ideas or, you know, building things that hopefully are useful. Right. And then it gets back to Jeff Bezos where it's like, is Amazon on the whole a net positive? And this is like another really interesting conversation. Amazon started out of Jeff Bezos's basement is a bookseller. A really good bookseller that paid people a living wage and whatnot might have been beneficial. Amazon is no longer that. So then it's like a question of, are you just driven by drive or are you driven by the thing? Bill Gates and Microsoft, as you were pointing out at first, he was like driven by drive. And now we've just gotten lucky that he's like, all right, might as well use this for you know global public health. And when you think about it, in a way, Elon Musk, who I like have the most like visceral irk reaction about, he's been pretty consistent from the start around like revolutionizing technology in a way that's good for the planet. I mean, his whole space thing is about like life on Mars because we might like outgrow this planet. Um so it it's just interesting that like he hasn't taken his drive in random directions. He's been on point with something. Now, there are all kinds of criticisms about how he treats employees and this, that, and the other and trying to get tax breaks. But I think at the end of the day, Elon Musk would say, oh, yeah, of course I have a huge ego. And like I'm building electric cars because climate change is a big problem. And I want to save the planet. Yeah. I mean, I could I could easily see... And I'm not an Elon Musk fanboy. So like, yeah. it's, I'm, I'm kind of shocked I'm saying this right now, but it, this conversation has helped me arrive here. Yeah. it's. I'm glad we're having this conversation because it's almost like we're unpa- we are unpacking it in real time, I feel like. Um, it, it, yeah. It, it's interesting because if you think of, you think of, um, you know, a Bezos as like, in 20 years, could he flip the script and be, you know, be Bill Gates and do the thing? And we change our perceptions on it. On Musk, you think of, well, not even 20 years. Jeff Bezos could just cut. What's his net worth? We'd have to put it into Google. I think I heard like 180 billion. Yeah, something like that. So he could Um, just, he could just take half of that and divide it by, I don't know, like, then there's too many zeros to do the math, but he could probably take the 10 million lowest income people in this country and lift them out of poverty, which is just nuts. Oh, this gets into my trophy idea, Steve. Should we tell him about my trophy idea? You know, you mentioned it, so you might as well go with it. Okay, this is this is like the um, the little break for some politics here, but it's not major party politics. So I think most people can agree that here in America, where Steve and I both live, inequality is a big problem. You've got a lot of people at the very top that are super rich and many people who are struggling just to make ends meet. And we got into this conversation because I always feel like arguing over like whether or not we should tax like the dentist you know, that makes 180K more is like totally missing the forest for the trees. 
there are probably 50 people that all have well over a billion dollars. And no one needs more than a billion dollars to live, period. I mean, I think about how much money a million dollars is, and then 10 million, and then 10 times 10 is 100 million, and then to have 10 of those, and then you're just at your first billion. Like, when you actually step back and think about it, it's insane. So I don't think that Jeff, let me finish my idea. I don't think that someone like Jeff Bezos cares about getting from 88 billion to, you know, 108 billion because he needs the money. I think it's just they're playing a game and they want to win. So my idea was all dollars over 1 billion should be taxed at like 95% and reinvested into the community to help people that are experiencing poverty. And as a part of that revenue generation, you create the Stanley Cup of billionaires. And every year, if you have over a billion dollars and you contribute to the tax pool, you get your name inscribed on a trophy. You also get like a championship ring. So the cost of the Stanley Cup and those championship rings, I don't know, would be a couple hundred thousand dollars. The amount of tax revenue you generate would be billions and billions of dollars. And the billionaires would love it because then they'd have like this trophy and this ring and they could compete and society would love them and they'd be like heroes. So if anyone in politics is listening, I really don't think there would be pushback if you made the trophy cool enough and you made the club exclusive enough. So give them rings, give them inscription on a trophy, the Stanley Cup of billionaires, and then tax everything over a billion dollars at 95%. Wow. I never thought I'd be sharing that on our show. But I, it's a good idea. I, I I need people if you know if if you have an inroads to your senator or something or however this stuff gets done, um, Stanley Cup of billionaires. <laughs> like like, do you really think there'd be a lot of pushback if it was done in a way where it's like you know you guys are all going to compete for this and society will celebrate you and there's a trophy that's going to live on in time forever so you'll outlive yourself. And you get these cool rings that you can wear to your country club or whatever. I think it would work. Of course, there's pushback. It's politics. There's pushback on everything. Um, two two quick things that I want to point out. First, there are 614 billionaires in the U.S. And then the other point that I think is really, wow. really important is, so that, much money. is that when this idea comes up, I think... It's important to understand how bad all of us, that's me and Brad included, how bad we struggle with math and understanding what a billion is. Um, Because we just tend to think a million and then the next is a billion. And it's like, oh, there's not that much gap. But like when you sit down and look at how much money a billion is, like Brad's theory idea um, makes sense on, well, there's no need for tens or hundreds of billions. Right. If you got a $100,000 check listener today, it would probably be a big deal. You'd at the very least tell your significant other or good friend that, hey, a check just came for $100,000 in the mail. If you put $100,000 into Jeff Bezos' bank account, it wouldn't even register as a rounding error. So just sit on that. Give the guys a trophy, let them compete for it, and women, because I'm sure some of those 614 are women, unless they've all given it to charity because they tend to be better people. But give the give the guys and gals a trophy, let them compete for it, and then redistribute that money to people that need it. 
And that would be my my program. You could fund universal basic income with a trophy. All right. There it is. That's the idea to save the the world. Um maybe coming- that's maybe that's the thing. Now maybe I need to put everything else in my life down and try to just push this idea across the finish line. Maybe this is it. This is your driver. I just want to say that only 13% of those 614 are women. So Yeah, what did I say? That I, you didn't give a number. I'm just giving specifics. Oh, no, no. What did I say? Meaning like, like yeah, of course more are men. Not because men are smarter, but because women are probably like, I don't need all this money. I'm going to be with my family and like do good stuff. The dudes are like, we got to get more and more. Keep score. Trophy. Put them on a trophy. All right. You guys get the point. All right. All right. So Stanley Cup of billionaires. Here we go. You know, one thing that you mentioned there, bringing us back to our, our original topic, is you said like missing the forest from the trees. I wonder if someone like an Elon Musk who's thinking, oh, we've got to have electric cars and then get to Mars or space travel or else like our our planet company or our planet is people are done for. I wonder if that makes him sit there and be like, why are you guys arguing over A, B, C, and D? Like, this is obviously what matters. This has mattered for the last 20 years of my focus. Like, let's stop arguing over stuff or missing the forest from the trees. Oh, totally. And now we're getting into like, you can have that discussion on so many levels And there, I think it's just based on your experience. So like I have somebody in my local community that always says, I can't believe how much time people spend on the culture wars, on discussing gender issues and pronouns and Dr. Seuss and cancel culture. The planet is burning and democracy is backsliding. Every single resource should be on those two issues. Well, this person is not transgender, hasn't been offended by Dr. Seuss, hasn't been canceled, hasn't been like on the receiving end, the offending end. My point is, totally valid perspective if you care about the species. If you're someone who's being discriminated against right now, you probably don't have the luxury to care about the species. So I think there, there's again, I don't think there's any right answer. I think it's trying to gain more context and more perspective. And like, you know, we talk about this all the time on the issue of um, transgender and in athletics, where both of us feel there's no real good answer. But I think it's helpful here to take like a philosophical approach, because there have been smart people who have done a lot of thinking in like you're either Rawls or utilitarian. I think the utilitarian was Bentham. I could be wrong. It's been a while since I, I took a philosophy course. But Rawls would say, put yourself behind the veil of ignorance, meaning imagine you are the least well-off person in a situation and build a world for that person. Whereas Bentham and the utilitarians, if Bentham was the guy, I'll, I'll look at that. We'll do a fact check in a second. But the utilitarians would say, do the greatest good for the greatest amount of people. So here the utilitarians say, forget everything else but climate change. Because if you account for future generations, that's it. Like Every single investment should be going towards countries in poverty, giving them clean water and climate change. Whereas if you take Rawls, you say, focus immensely on your neighbor 
that might be LGBTQ or whatever and raise the bar up for that person that's suffering next door to you because you should create a world that you'd want to live in if you were them. And these are just different philosophical approaches. Neither is right. That's what makes these things so hard. So we've just gone back, I think, to that idea. Are you zoomed in and narrow or are you zoomed out and looking at things um, from a different perspective? And it's all all kind of the perspective that we tend to take to things. And it's not that either is right or wrong. It's just having a different lens through the world. Wow, I was right. Jeremy Bentham. That was the guy. He was the utilitarian. I had a wonderful TA back at the University of Michigan undergraduate school, taught my philosophy class. It was like an intro to philosophy. It was the most interesting class because it was the undergrad level. So we weren't into like, you know, theory of language and like, why do we say but versus yet? And what does that mean for how we think? Because I've later learned that's a lot of what philosophy becomes. But it was like survey philosophy. Like, here's utilitarians. Here's Rawls. um, Here's Peter Singer on animal rights. So that was a good class because you just got to wrestle with these big ideas. But then the answer is always like, I don't know. It depends. But yeah, yeah, I think it's important. Even, even, yeah, the zooming in and the narrowing. It's like, well, if you're a utilitarian, then you want the pusher to go all in because the possible benefit to everyone, if their thing is a good thing, is enormous. If you're Rawls, you're like, no, they should aim to be more involved in the lives of the people that are around them. Um, and there's no right answer. I'm glad that, you know, I'm impressed that you remember that from philosophy class because the only thing I remember from my introduction to philosophy at Rice University is that I got in a argument with the professor because he we were talking about singer and animal rights, and then he brought up Pavo Nermi, who was a distance runner in the 1920s, who was vegetarian or vegan, and he was convinced that distance runners could uh, should all be vegan or vegetarian because Pavo Nermi succeeded in the 1920s. And I was like, hey, man, it's the 2000s. Right. But you know who should be vegan or vegetarian? I'm going to get us into trouble here. Should I do it? I'm going to do it. <laughs> Go for it. If you are pro-life on the argument that the fetus at X early age is a sentient being, then you ought to be a vegan. This was another thing that came up in our philosophy class because a pig has significantly more emotional intelligence, can feel more depression, anxiety, and emotional pain, can feel more physical pain than a fetus all the way up until quite late in the term. So um, there are other reasons to be pro-life, and you may have those reasons, but from a logical standpoint, if you are pro-life and it has anything to do with the fetus being a sentient being, in order to be consistent, you ought to be a vegan, you ought to oppose capital punishment. Um, So that's like the stuff I found interesting about philosophy is just like how inconsistent so many people's thinking is. All right. Well, you took us down that rabbit hole. Um, hope, hopefully, uh, we don't, um, you know, lose too many listeners from it. But it, I think the point of point of even that is that we're that humans. has nothing to do with Bill Gates, Steve. Good luck. No, I'm gonna I'm gonna do it. We're humans. We're complex. 
a lot of times we're illogical and things don't make sense. So you might sit there and be like, you know, Bill Gates is trying to save the world with his vaccines and his water and all this stuff, and he can't save his marriage. What's the deal? That's, the deal is he's trying to save the world. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's we're kind of illogical messes of creatures, and that's okay. I think our where we come down on this and our message is to try. It's okay to be extremely driven. It's okay to be passionate, hopefully on the harmonious side. But what you should try and do is, well, you're narrowed in seeing the world through this limited lens is be able to zoom out every once in a while, look around, you know, take a peek and say, is this what I want? Is this where I want to go? Yeah, good ways to do it too. Spend a lot of time in nature. Go on a camping trip or like a, a, a multi-day backpacking hiking trip. Um, a lot of research shows that putting yourself out there in the world, which is very big, can help remind you that what you're pursuing tends to be small. Unless you're Elon Musk and you're literally pursuing another planet. I don't know if hikes would work for him. But for most people, um, experiencing awe is a really good way to gain uh, to gain that kind of perspective. And then I'd say the other point to take away is try not to judge people that are pushing and try not to judge people that choose not to push um, so long as the pushing is in a positive direction. Again, I, I have a hard time, all the meditation and you know Buddhist training I do, I have a very hard time not judging executives at tobacco companies. I don't have as hard of a time not judging the person that has three marriages but is running a huge ICU. I just feel for everyone in that situation. Um, so I think it's important to remember. And the flip side is also true. The person that says, screw this, I don't want to be you know, XYZ driven person because I want to have more, of, um, more time and energy and space for my family. And that's fine too. Like... The nine to five person that goes through the motions doing accounting might be the best dad and partner of it there could be. And as very um, gender specific, it could also be the best mom. Um, you know, accountant tends to be a pretty male dominated field. It, and I think that non judgmental is important because, like, everyone's going to make their own decisions, and that is good. We should be for that. You know, I think of a couple examples, you know, recently. Um, there's been kind of a, a spat of NFL players who have retired early in, in like the prime of their career. And overwhelmingly, the reason is, you know, I want to be there for my family. I want to be there for my family for a long time. Like, I still love the sport. Like, I'm driven for it. But like, I'm, they were able to step back, you know, see the costs, benefits, et cetera. And in their spe specific situation say, no, like, even though I love this thing that I'm doing and I realize how beneficial, how, you know, lucky I am uh, to be able to do it, I'm still going to step away. Yeah, I think that's a really good analogy. And, and not to judge the people that still play. Um, basically, don't be so quick to judge uh, unless you're tobacco company level bad end goal. That's what I got today, Steve. Are we missing anything? Man, we went all over the effing place. But hopefully you guys pulled out some interesting tidbits um, 
at the very least, please, please, please find your local person with a phone to the senator and and raise my trophy idea as a part of any big tax overhaul. <laughs> Joe Biden, Stanley Cup. Get you know, done. there's that behavioral um, economics study. I don't know if it's true or if this is now just the stuff of myth where they put like little flies in urinals, which I see all the time now. So presumably it's true. And the urinals are a lot cleaner because if you give the dude something to aim for, he'll aim for it. And I think that that's what I'm talking about with this trophy. (laughs) (laughs) So we just compared urinals to a billionaire trophy to the Stanley Cup. Man, this podcast has had everything. I don't really know where to go except to say listeners. Um, thank you for you made it this you know, far. <laughs> yeah, thank you for coming along on this ride. Yeah, you, you guys are, get an inside look at, at the growth EQ, the brains of the operation for better or worse. Um, you maybe, know, we tend to be more elegant writing because we both are multiple draft writers and a podcast is a first draft, but we hope that you find the first draft interesting in, in ways that our written work isn't. Um, and if you don't, that's fine too. You know, just read our written work. We had a guy that is a big time supporter of the Growth EQ email us and basically say like, you guys are too all over the place on your podcast. Your writing is so good. It's so concise. Um, and the podcast is not concise. And I called Steve freaking out like I always do. I'm like, crap, are we hurting ourselves? Steve's like, no, like our podcast isn't meant to be like our written work. So it's a look under the hood. Um, If you're here for the concise, elegant stuff, uh, read what we write. But if you enjoy kind of the banter and and getting a a sneak behind what goes into some of the stuff that we write about, then this is a good spot for you. Consider this as the... Before the first draft, the idea generation stage where Brad and I, this is how we come up with ideas for our books that then take, you know, years essentially to reach the point that they do. So um, with all that being said, thanks for coming along on this ride. In all seriousness, we love feedback, even if it's something like that, that seems a little bit negative. The feedback helps because it helps us kind of check. If you're listening, Hugh, we, we listen to your feedback. We're here. If you, I doubt you made it this far, but you never know. <laughs> and who knows? Maybe you'll get a shout out on the podcast. But the feedback does help. It makes us step back and ask, should we do this? Are we serving an audience? Like, are we bringing value? Or is it just Brad and I rambling for an hour and everybody's like, how in the world do these guys write? elegantly and concisely when their podcast is all over the place. Yeah. All right. Well, until next time, um, be well, everyone. Peace, love, non-judgment, and... um, And find that Stanley Cup for billionaires. Find that Stanley Cup, man. Thanks for listening to the Growth Equation podcast. Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website, www.thegrowtheq.com. Follow us on Twitter, at B. Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, as this goes a long way in helping it reach others.